0: Blaze on Demand.
1: This is Ben Weingarten of the Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by Brett Stevens, author of the new book, America in Retreat The New Isolationism and the Coming Global Disorder. Brett is a Pulitzer Prize winner and the Wall Street Journal's deputy editorial page editor responsible for international opinion. He's also a member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board. Brett, thanks so much for joining me today.
0: It's great to be on the show.
1: So, Brett, the first question I have for you is, in your book, you talk about both the history, sort of the practical, and the philosophy differences between those who advocate a more internationalist stance and those who advocate an isolationist stance. And one of the ways that you bring forth this dichotomy is through talking about Henry Wallace and Teft as sort of caricatures to bring forth the isolationist views on the left and the right. Talk about that history a little
0: bit. Well, one thing that um, my book tries to emphasize is that isolationism is uh, a longstanding and in some ways very respectable strain of American foreign policy. People often take umbrage at the term and say, how dare you call me an isolationist? But the truth is that when um, George Washington... Uh, and Thomas Jefferson warned against foreign entanglements, uh, that was very much in what would become the isolationist uh, tradition, which is to say that America ought to stand alone. It should have commerce with other nations. It should have friendship with other nations. Uh, but really, it ought to go its own way. And in many respects, it defined uh a great deal of U.S. foreign policy all the way up until um, the uh, uh, Spanish-American War. Obviously, sometimes observed more in the breach than in reality, but that was the American foreign policy tradition. And that, of course, began to change with um, the presidencies of of, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, uh, our involvement in uh, in the First World War. But in the 1920s and 30s, We had a period of American foreign policy, which is typically described as isolationist. That doesn't mean we became North Korea and simply cut off relations with other countries. Of course, we conducted a foreign policy. But it was a foreign policy that was extremely wary of investing American power in the troubles of the rest of the world, uh, of um, uh, developing military resources adequate to enforce the kind of world order that had been established after World War I, of uh, coming to the aid of allies or at least fellow democracies like France and Britain. And we know where that streak in American foreign policy led to. It, it helped contribute to the catastrophe of World War II, because when countries like Germany, Japan, and Italy and the Soviet Union realized that the liberal powers – uh, of the day did not want to enforce their will uh did not want to did not want to defend a liberal order. It was a signal that it was open season now then America had went into the second world war, won the war, and after the war, there was this debate about what we should do as a country should we simply demobilize and repeat the pattern uh, that uh, had been established after the first world war, or should we become the guarantor of a liberal democratic world order, particularly when it came to uh, restoring European democracies, uh, um, uh, transforming Japan into a a democratic ally, and so on. And this debate was very vigorously engaged, uh, particularly in 1947, when Britain basically announced that it could no longer go on propping up the governments of Greece and Turkey. Greece was being uh, attacked by a communist insurgency, and they... Brits basically asked us, uh, well, would you chaps take over because we're, uh, we're out of there. We don't have the resources to prop up uh, to, to, to honor our, our uh, foreign policy commitments. And uh, you had the debate over what became the Truman Doctrine. And you had very powerful voices on the left and on the right arguing for the traditional isolationist path. Henry Wallace had been Franklin Roosevelt's uh, vice president uh he nearly had become if, if Roosevelt had died a year earlier he would have been uh he would have been the president. Um he argued powerfully against um investing American resources uh to prop up a government like the government of Greece or the government of Turkey against uh against uh Soviet Attempts to usurp them, and on the right you had someone like Robert Taft, in many ways a very distinguished senator. He used to be called Mr. Republican for his opposition to the New Deal, but Taft actually had a lot in common uh, when it came to foreign policy uh, with uh, with Henry Wallace. He too was extremely skeptical of American commitment abroad. Uh, they had this, uh, what I think is a historic argument. I devote an entire chapter to it. Uh, They had this uh, argument with the Truman administration, uh, people like George Marshall, then the Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, his uh, deputy, uh, along with Republicans, uh, more international-minded Republicans like Senator Arthur Vandenberg of uh, Michigan. And uh, that debate was settled, and the United States decided to embrace the Truman Doctrine, decided to come to the aid of these small, embattled uh, countries uh, faced with communist insurgencies. And you had the makings not just of the containment policy, but of America, of Pax Americana, of America as the world's policeman. And that turned out, lo and behold, to have been a very good world. We stopped the Soviet Union from from uh, conquering the world. We created a world order of other liberal democracies. We created an order of, of free trading societies, uh, of places where... Um, uh, you could travel, you could trade, you could make money. Capital was mobile, labor was mobile. That's the world that you and I um, have grown up in. You know, you get on a plane, you go—I don't know—you fly to Hong Kong or you fly to uh, Seoul or you fly to France, and if you need money, you take your ATM card, stick it in the machine, talk, it talk it reads back to you in English, and you you, you take out uh, local currency. That is Pax Americana. That's one of the examples of of the benefits of our investment in this world. And that was the world we had right up until Barack Obama became president and started talking about nation building at home, started treating foreign policy and domestic policy as if they were a zero-sum game, as if it were one or the other. And so I see Barack Obama as a president or as an American statesman basically in the mold of Henry Wallace basically saying that it's in the american interest to uh not be so invested in global security in letting the rest of the world sort itself out in uh turning to something like the institutions like the UN to settle conflicts um that is that is uh, i see wallace as kind of or obama as the heir to uh to henry wallace and i see a guy like rand paul i mean rand paul is still a work in progress but in many ways, Rand Paul reminds me of Robert Taft. It's uh, uh, I'm very much in sympathy with him when he talks about the importance of small government, but then when it comes to foreign policy, he sounds like a modern day uh, Robert Taft, telling us just to, to stay out of the rest of the world's business. And so that was that's some of the historical context. Very long answer for you, Ben, but some of the historical context that uh, informs this book.
1: Sure, and you provide a really useful quote from Henry Wallace that sort of reflects this, the idea of a progressive or leftist foreign policy that stems from the same sort of grievance-based, morally relativistic, victimology, dialectical view, so to speak, that the left applies to other areas. So you talk about Henry Wallace articulated that the U.S. wasn't so much sinned against in the world as it was the sinner, and I'm, and I'm quoting here, that America could do more to prevent communist aggression by turning the other cheek and by confronting it head-on, that Americans had more to fear from what their own government might do in the name of security than from any foreign threat. Progressives have not had a single original foreign policy idea since then. Yeah, it's, gonna... uh, it's true. I mean, you read The Nation
0: or these sort of left-wing magazines And and they're just rehashes of of exactly that, of that Henry Wallace view that uh, um, whatever we do will be bad, will be stupid, will be wrong, uh, and we have uh, no business except to to mind our own business.
1: And the only difference, it seems, with the Obama administration, you look at the secretive unilateral negotiations with China, unilateral negotiations with Iran, likely the other secret negotiations that have occurred throughout Arabia – I guess the only difference is that now, as opposed to a hands-off perspective, the president, to some degree, is highly active in foreign affairs in sort of a, call it a global social justice movement to redistribute American power to foreign nations that oppose us. Well, what do you think about that critique?
0: Well, you saw this in this
1: uh,
0: climate deal uh, just at the, it now with... Uh, with China, um, which is uh, we're going to um, use this uh, arbitrarily arrived at deal with no actual legality uh, to impose climate uh, emissions quotas in the United States ostensibly with the participation of uh, the Chinese, who of course have no interest in honoring uh, uh any of their uh, uh, any of their agreements, except in so far as they were about doing what they meant to do. But you know, a lot of the secret, a lot of these secret negotiations that you're referring to, are really all in the service of retreat. I mean, the negotiations that are being conducted with Iran uh, are all for the sake of getting a, getting to a face-saving some kind of face-saving agreement with the Iranians, so that we can pretend that we've stopped them from uh, getting a nuclear bomb. Uh, and uh, turn our backs on the crisis of Iran's nuclearization. I mean, that's, that's the purpose of that, uh, of that negotiation. I mean, everything that Obama has done with just a handful of, of exceptions has been about getting out, not asking whether it's the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do, the right time to do it, the wrong time to do it. Uh, it's all about heading for the exits. I mean, one of the points that I make is that Barack Obama's idea of a perfect foreign policy is to have less foreign policy. Uh, and so everything that he can do to hand the burden of American leadership onto some other country or some other institution is what he intends to do. I mean, he, he pays for political reasons, the occasional lip service to the concept of American leadership, but I don't think he sees America as a leader in the world. He thinks that America ought to be simply the biggest net contributor to an institution like the United Nations.
1: And of course that, the vacuum and power that that retreat can create is is certainly represented, for example, in proliferation, nuclear proliferation negotiations with the Russians, for example, where, and this is perfectly analogous to, to a degree to the China deal, where we will basically disarm, destroy our nuclear stockpiles and allow Russia to increase theirs. It would be funny if it weren't so insane and disastrous.
0: Right. I mean, in fact, Russia, we have essentially allowed Russia to become the world's uh, largest nuclear power. After signing the, uh, the the New START Treaty in 2010, uh, uh, we've been radically cutting our um, arsenal. We're trying to reach the, the targets of the treaty uh, ahead of schedule. The Russians are actually building their arsenal, and more to the point, they are cheating on uh, – some of their previous nuclear agreements, like the 1987 INF treaty, you know, this is a that, that particular story is, I think, really one of the most underplayed, underappreciated stories. The Obama administration had a pretty good idea that Russia was treating uh, that Russia was cheating on this landmark 1987 deal, uh, pretty much by the time it came to office. But it was so keen on getting an additional nuclear treaty that it essentially hid the fact. That Russia was cheating, and it was only after the invasion of Ukraine that, very reluctantly, very grudgingly, the administration sort of, kind of, accepted, or or let it be known that it too had had reached the conclusion that Russia was uh, Russia was cheating. So we're we're engaging in this kind of uh, fantasy uh, of willfully ignoring reality in the service of the overriding imperative by the president to head for the
1: exits. And sort of transitioning a bit, in the book you talk about sort of your ideal conservative foreign policy. You have principled conservatives, people who do believe in a strong America which flexes its muscle when it needs to, who will say that We still need to slash the military budget at times. And you you write, quote, conservatives will not save money by shrinking the military. They will merely ensure that the money that's supposedly saved will promptly be spent on Obamacare bailouts, unquote. And incidentally, of course, the whole long-range sort of progressive strategy was force the government to become so big that you have to make a decision between cutting social welfare programs and cutting the military and if the military is bogged down all over the world in unpopular wars, not executed properly with no strategic, you know, no strategic vision, that ultimately people will sour on them and we will shrink our budget to our own detriment. My, my question for you is, do you think that there's merit to the argument of those conservatives who say that that should be cut from the military so long as the military actually does what it's supposed to do and doesn't undertake politically correct, Misguided adventures overseas.
0: Well, look. I mean, you hear people say we need to cut the military because we need to cut the deficit, and yet the countries in the West that have the highest deficits, the largest, the, the biggest de- uh, debts, uh, um, are the countries that have cut all that that have cut their militaries the most. Um, you know, the welfare state countries of Europe uh, have. Uh, gone again and again to their militaries to find quote balancing budget cuts while they vastly increase their entitlement state and lo and behold not only are they now uh, bankrupt they're also defenseless uh, so the idea that you can balance the budget on the back of the military is, is just completely fanciful now that being said um, uh, we need to we need to figure out a way to spend our military dollars a lot more intelligently than we have. And I, this is a subject that I talk about in the book. You know, we spend tens if not hundreds of billions of dollars investing in sort of fifth-generation weapons uh, that are so head and shoulders above our competitors as to sort of be in, almost in competition with an imaginary adversary. And we spend so much money on these platforms that we discover that when it comes time to produce them, we don't have enough money. So we spent billions developing the F 22, the greatest fighter that ever was or probably will be, and we ended up buying just 187 or so of them. So it was a preposterous investment of money for the sake of so few planes. We need to discover the virtues of numbers over, you know, kind of wonder weapons. Uh, David Petraeus has a saying that. Uh, maybe it, maybe it's not his original to him, but I, I once heard him say uh, quantity has a quality all its own. And it, our military planners have to discover the benefits of good enough equipment of building as we did in World War II, not necessarily building the best tank in the world. You know, in the Second World War, the Germans had the best tank. They had the Tiger tanks, but they were hard to build. And we built Shermans, and it was on the back of Shermans that we conquered uh, uh, we conquered uh, 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 Germany. Um, so we, we, we need smarter military spending, and we also need to be much more thoughtful about the nature of our interventions. I, mean, I, to this day, believe that getting rid of Saddam Hussein was absolutely the right thing to do. The guy was a menace to global order. But we went into Iraq with the purpose of making an example of Saddam Hussein – and we ended up staying in Iraq for the purpose of making Iraq exemplary. We wanted to turn this country into a model Arab democracy. The first purpose was to enforce global order, to punish and to get rid of a, a, a rogue dictator, um, and uh, uh, and and that's a classic police function. Here's a bad guy, uh, and he is flouted international, or he's, he's, he's flouted uh, international norms long enough, he's crossed too many of our red lines, we're going to get rid of him, we're going to take him out. But then to go from there, to this quixotic attempt to create gender balances in the Iraqi parliament, and tell the Iraqis how to you know bring themselves into a kind of 21st century, socially sensitive uh, uh, democracy, I think was insane. Um, and uh, We've drawn the wrong lesson from, from the Iraq war. We said, well, it just shows that you can never fix these countries. The point isn't to fix them. The point is to make examples of certain types of uh, rogue behavior uh, and send a signal to other rogues that uh, at some point they will pay a price for certain kinds of
1: behavior. As opposed to dressing up Sharia-compliant constitutions. <laughs>
0: yes, precisely as opposed to then becoming a country that fancies that we have a say in uh, what the what what Islam really is. Uh and uh I mean it it's just the most extraordinary thing. Uh it, it should go without saying that the military should not be used for social work, should not be put in the service of um uh, attempts to redeem culturally crippled societies. Uh, it can't be done, and any attempt to do it will just spend a lot of money uh, um, rolling Sisyphus's, you know, boulder up uh, up the hill. That doesn't mean that we can't uh, ensure that, uh, or or we can't use American power to enforce certain rules of the road and to make sure that when a Saddam Hussein. Uh, Uh, threatens his neighbors, or when Iran tries to build nuclear weapons, that we are prepared to exact a very high price on them, both in order to punish them, but also to deter their would-be imitators?
1: Two questions related to Syria. The first is, why, in your view, is it in America's strategic interest to intervene? And the second is, can we really have any faith that we would execute regime change there properly given the vacuum that it would create for all matter of horrendous replacements, most likely. And the fact that our arming of various parties on the ground in the Middle East has a very dubious record historically, besides maybe the Afghanis against the Russians. And that obviously changed on a dime.
0: Well, I mean, look, uh, I guess the best way of answering your question is to say, look at what the consequences of inaction have been. Okay, we have essentially have done nothing in Syria. And as a result, we have uh, allowed the Assad regime, that is Iran's best friend in the uh, Arab world, to survive. We have maintained that bridge with Hezbollah. We have also, in the meantime, through inaction... Allowed ISIS to become the most powerful force in the insurgency. We have allowed a humanitarian crisis with the with the um, uh, exit of millions of refugees to threaten the stability of all of uh, Syria's uh, neighbors, including, I think, very critically, Jordan, which uh, I think is touch and go, quite frankly. Um, We have turbocharged jihadism around the world because one thing we know about jihadis is that they thrive in chaos. So those have been the consequences of inaction. Now, uh, can I tell you with uh, perfect certainty or even even 70% certainty that if we had intervened, Uh, everything would be great now. No, of course I can't tell you that. And you also have to be mindful of uh, what happened in Libya, although Libya was also an example of what happens when America acts and then just pretends that the problem is solved with no zero effort at uh, uh, any kind of uh, strategic follow-up. But let's imagine that we had intervened early in getting rid of Assad. The first six months of the uprising against Assad was essentially a peaceful uprising. During those early months, you did not have al-Qaeda in uh, Iraq. You certainly didn't have ISIS. ISIS didn't even exist uh, uh, up until about 16 or 17, uh, um, uh, 17 months ago. Uh, you would have, at a very minimum, deprived Iran of its principal partner in the, uh, uh, in, in the Middle East. Uh, so there would have been a strategic victory in that. The problem is that because we've been conditioned by what happened in Iraq, we imagine, well, if we'd gone in, then we would have had to have cured the ills of Syria. I'm not sure that's our responsibility. Well, the points I make in the book is this idea that we get from Colin Powell that there is a that there is a pottery barn rule in foreign policy you know you break it you fix it that is not that should not be a rule for the United States. America America does not have some kind of moral responsibility for fixing other societies. America has a national responsibility for making sure that our own core interests and the interests of our best allies are secured, that we do not allow uh, jihadi groups to be turbocharged in the chaotic environs that that, that have been created in Syria. So I can't give you a perfect assurance that had we intervened, uh, things would have been great. But what I can tell you with some confidence is that a policy of insistent inaction in Syria has led to a, a reality there that is, where it 's hard to imagine how it could be worse, how could it be worse that we now have an ISIS that threatens not just never mind Syria threatens uh, uh, is, is on is fifteen miles from Baghdad airport um, and could very swiftly move into Jordan uh, um, where Assad continues to uh, drop chemical weapons on his own people and by the way maintains the chemical weapons. Uh, um, uh, infrastructure. I mean, it's it's as bad as it could possibly be. And I guess the last point I'd make, Ben, is, you know, let me tell you about another country that was uh, a, a stitched-up country of various ethnicities and religions that came, came into existence after the First World War and that uh, fell into disrepair and, and civil war and ethnic and sectarian strife, and that country was called Yugoslavia. Um, and yet we intervened in Yugoslavia and the result was we avoided the spillover of eight years of balkan wars into the rest of europe so there are i mean we we can't we shouldn't talk ourselves into the idea that everything the united states does militarily is just going to foul it up
1: you also make a, a compelling case in this book that america's enemies throughout the world are not truly a threat to supplanting us because We are so dominant in so many areas in spite of sort of the malaise-type feeling among Americans today. However, our enemies also have sort of asymmetric advantages that allow them to hurt us at a fraction of the cost as it used to take. So I'm thinking specifically in that instance of putting bugs into our computer systems and being able to shut down our infrastructure remotely or other cyber attacks against us, as well as the fact that terrorists obviously at a very small cost can seriously disrupt the country. And you think about all the knock-on effects from 9-11, for example, and how much that ended up costing us and has hurt us and made us probably a more politically correct country. My question is, do you still believe that we are going to be able to fend off these enemies when they're not fighting on an equal playing field with us?
0: Um Yes, I do. The question is not the outcome. The question is the price we're going to have to pay and if we um, put our heads in the sand, if we pretend that Russia is not a strategic adversary, if we pretend that a nuclear iran is is a containable problem, then the price we 're going to end up having to pay to uh um, to uh live in a world that uh, uh you and I want to live in is going to be a very, very high price as we discovered you know uh seventy five uh, um, uh, seventy five years ago. Uh, there is a, you know, there, there, there's always been a kind of declinist streak in uh, American politics. And one of the points I make in the book is that a lot of people like to talk about how America is in decline because they secretly wish it so. Because if America is in decline, then the prescription becomes, well, then we need to retreat, right? Because we can't afford the global commitments. We aren't now, as Tennyson said, that, you know, that strength that we were, you know. Um, uh, and uh, uh, and so uh, declinism isn't so much analysis, it's, it's, um, it, it's, it's actually a kind of a, uh, a wish. We are for better or worse, we will be, not for better or worse, we are for better, we will be the world's leading economic power and the most important country in, in the free world, uh, I think, through the rest of this century. I don't see any any country supplanting us um, uh, as the world's leading economy—I uh, just don't believe the China hype, just as I didn't believe the Japan hype uh, uh, 25 years ago. And so we have to reckon with the fact that we're going to be uh, we're going to be number one uh, for a long time. And one of the things that comes with number one is you have uh, enemies attempting to do just what you uh, had described: uh, cyber attacks, cyber thefts, terrorist attacks. Um, that's All the more reason to be that much more engaged in the world. Because look, if we were New Zealand, you know, at some far corner of the world, then, you know, you're kind of innocuous, you're inconspicuous. uh, And you can go on with a pleasant, farm sheep or do, you know, uh, you know, play rugby or do what they do in New Zealand. And it's all it's all good. Uh, But you have no real enemies um, or at least uh, not 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 major enemies. But the United States does have major enemies, and we cannot conduct foreign policy as if those enemies can simply be wished away or negotiated away, uh, or, or, um, or, or we can simply, through an act of rhetorical, um, uh, through an act of rhetorical sophistry, kind of uh, pretend that uh, their enmity shouldn't mean much. We need to be alert to the fact. That a nuclear Iran, for example, means nuclear proliferation in the most dangerous part of the world, and puts those kinds of weapons that much closer to the hands of a terrorist organization. we need to be alert to the fact that the Chinese are trying to are in fact stealing our data every single day, and that the means to conduct cyber warfare are growing, and we have to invest in a very big and robust and, and forthright way in uh, in dealing with that. We need to understand that Russia. Uh, if it succeeds in further conquering Ukraine is going to be tempted to test the integrity of NATO by attacking one of the Baltic States. And we have to ask ourselves, um, what are we actually doing right now to stop that from happening? Right now, I can't see that we're doing anything other than o- Obama telling himself he gave a speech six months ago, and, and that settles the matter. You know, one of the one of the things that's so toxic about the Obama administration is that this is a guy who substitutes speeches for policy. I mean, there are many other things I could say about his foreign policy, and do say about his foreign policy in the in, in the book, and why it's been such an epic disaster for the United States. Uh, but this idea that rhetoric is a substitute for action is, part of, is, is, is is just one of Obama's core failures. You know, people like Vladimir Putin are not moved by Obama's windy speeches. They respect only force and only the United States has the means. Uh, it'll have to be under different leadership to provide that force, uh, uh, to deter them, to stop them, to reassure our allies and to uh, uh, and to maintain a decent world order uh, that is that is safe and secure for all of us.
1: Since we talked about all of the negative here, one positive has there been a better outcome of the Obama foreign policy than Sisi becoming allied with Israel?
0: Yeah, of course. And take take note of the fact that it was an outcome. Uh, that came over the objections of the Obama foreign policy. So uh, as with all good things that have happened in the last six years, Ben, it has been in spite of Obama, not because of Obama. D- don't you love how Obama likes to take credit for fracking? Uh, I mean, of course. This, this is this is the guy who, you know, Mr. Solyndra now takes credit for Uh, For uh, energy superabundance, which he had absolutely nothing to do with. And again, with Sisi, the administration spent six months wringing its hands in in ambivalence and and, uh, uh, regret that Sisi had essentially saved Egypt from uh, the hands of the Muslim Brotherhood, from another Islamic theocracy. Uh, and in the process, by the way, saved, uh, uh, saved uh, the Egyptian-Israeli peace um, and, uh, and, and at least prevented yet another disastrous outcome in, um, uh, in the Middle East. You know, Sisi is a good example. It's a good reminder that uh, foreign policy is not a choice between uh, wonderful options and terrible options. Foreign policy is usually a choice of evils. Uh, no one, no one should pretend that Sisi is this great, you know, humanitarian. He's an Egyptian uh, uh, in the mold of, of uh, Hosni Mubarak. He's dictatorially minded. Uh, uh, human rights are not respected in Egypt. Um, and that said, you have to ask yourself, well, what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is uh, is a Muslim Brotherhood where human rights would also not be respected, but would also be an anti-Semitic, anti-American. Uh, 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 front of of Islamist activity. Uh, We should be very grateful for for Sisi's intervention um, and we should hope that the next American president will have the good sense to welcome good news uh, and know who America's friends are, know who our enemies are and uh, uh, support the former with everything we have and oppose the latter with everything we have. And the takeaway,
1: of course, is you know something is wrong when Egypt allows the Muslim Brotherhood and, and we invite them into our country and invite them as peace partners.
0: I mean, it's, it, it's insane on so many levels, and, you know, not the least of which is, isn't it interesting, Ben, how people who describe themselves as progressives in the United States uh, and for whom the most important issues are gay rights and, and women's rights and environmental rights always find themselves making common cause with religious fanatics uh, uh, and fundamentalists, whether they're in Hamas or in uh, uh, Hassan Rouhani's Iran or in in the Muslim Brotherhood, when it comes to foreign policy, it's always that um, it's always that sad fact that uh, on the progressive left, the secret temptation is uh, the the the, the, the I shouldn't say so secret, they they so often tend to be admirers of totalitarian movements abroad, even as they're espousing ostensibly liberal policies at home. And it was true with the left in America during the years of of the communist period, and now the Islamists have have replaced uh, uh, the communists as the
1: new locus of um, anti-American romance. And of course they ally with the Theoretically, former communist states themselves as well. Brett, you've been very generous with your time. I uh, just wanted to ask one last question, given your vast knowledge of the situation and, and focus on foreign policy, obviously. Uh, in Israel, I was in Jerusalem recently and actually passed the railroad station, I believe, where there was an attack and uh, a U.S.-born baby was killed And there have been increasing attacks throughout Jerusalem. It seems to be kind of an underplayed story in the U.S., frankly. Are we looking at a third intifada and contextualize that in the sense of the whole Middle East already is on fire and just north of Israel you have issues, in Gaza you have issues, in the Sinai you have issues, and and thankfully Sisi is kind of crushing opponents there with an iron fist. But are we on the verge of a third intifada and what does that mean for America?
0: well um for America, there's a moral choice. Are we going to side with uh, Israel uh, uh, when it attempts to stop Palestinians from knifing innocent people at railroad stations or driving their cars and murdering babies and 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 uh, uh, and mothers, or are we going to condemn Israel for taking the steps it needs to uh, uh, to defend its people i don't know if we're on the verge of a third intifada you'll be you'll be amused to know. Um, uh, that I actually uh, I have a book uh, I have a chapter in the book which uh, imagines the world in 2019 and part of that chapter is an is an intifada that I predicted would begin in January 2018. It looks like my prediction may have come true even sooner than I had uh, imagined. And by the way, uh, 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 an intifada that begins with uh, with clashes in the old city of Jerusalem. Uh, the Intifada will be yet another strategic challenge uh, uh, for uh, Israel, but it should also be a reminder to Israelis about just who they're facing. I mean, this isn't a Gandhian movement of peaceful civil resistance uh, um, against uh, against Israel. This is a group of people who see nothing wrong in waking up one morning, getting getting, putting a knife in their pocket, and 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 sticking a knife into some some poor guy who just happened to be at a train station at the wrong place at the wrong time. I'm calling it the murder intifada, Ben. And uh, um, the United States and Americans, and certainly so-called progressives, should not be siding with a movement that celebrates random acts of murder uh, to, uh, uh, to adapt a to uh, um So the Israelis will deal with this as they have have dealt with it in the past, I don't think it's so much the, – the important question isn't so much whether the Israelis will be able to deal with it. It's the moral challenge it presents the United States to side with um, the victims in this conflict against the aggressors.
1: The name of the book is America in Retreat, the New Isolationism and the Coming Global Disorder. And you can see the devastatingly scary world that Brett Stevens, who I've spoken with today, foresees in 2018 and 2019 –
0: if right. Hillary Clinton so
1: becomes president. Well, that alone is terrifying enough. All
0: right. Thank you very much, Brent. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks a million,
0: Ben. Thanks for this interview.
1: For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com slash books and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Blaze Books and Twitter at The Blaze Books. You can follow me on Twitter at BH Wine Garden.